You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Demetrius White on Sunday, September 19, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. If you'd be so kind to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll be focusing on verses 9 through 20. Verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> Here's the Apostle Paul in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. It is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. For there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Father, we come to you right now in the name of Jesus Christ. We come to you empty. We come to you powerless. We come to you asking for your help and your grace this morning. Father, we come asking that you would open our ears that we may hear. We come, Lord, asking that you would open our eyes, that we would see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. For the believer, Lord, we pray that you would usher them into joy in seeing what Christ has delivered them from. For those that are lost, that do not know Christ, that they would see the predicament that they're in. That they would come crying out to Christ. What must we do to be saved? And they will find that you are a sufficient Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before us we have a very daunting and an alarming passage. We're starting a mini-series called Two Sides of the Gospel. And if I were to give it a subtitle, I would give it this subtitle. Understanding the good news and the bad news. And we must understand both sides, the good news and the bad news, so that we could see the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. Because Romans 1-3 says that Jesus is the sum total of the gospel. He is its diamond. He is its jewel. He is the purpose. He is the glory and radiance of the gospel. In our day and age, the gospel has received a cosmetic makeover due to various ideologies and issues of the day. It has been modified into a cultural gospel, a man-centered gospel, a political gospel. And this new gospel has offered us a form of godliness, but it denies the power thereof to really change us and conform us to Christ. And this is the reason that, you know, you hear these phrases... You hear people saying phrases like this, the gospel is not enough, or we need more than the gospel for this particular situation. And I don't blame people for saying that, because here in America, we have turned the gospel into a trite phrase. 
We have used it as Christianese. And this is because the American church has, for, has failed to stress why the good news is the good news. We often sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But grace is not amazing if we do not understand why grace is needed at all. And the good news does not make sense without the bad news. What is that bad news? That man stands condemned before a holy God. We must understand this this morning. We must understand that the initial outworking of a false gospel is to forget this very point. It forgets to address the real issue of man standing before God. And this is Satan's greatest work. He loves to put the cart before the horse. And he wants us to do that. He wants the church to solely take on political issues, social issues, and the physical ills of the world alone. Notice I said alone. It is not wrong to engage these issues, but we must engage these issues biblically. Because if we address these issues outside of the gospel and outside of a robust biblical worldview, Satan has won the day. Listen, you can win a political seat. You can quench a cultural ill. You can feed a hungry man. You can eradicate abortion. But if we fail to address the fundamental issue of man's state before a holy God, we're simply whitewashing a tomb with, and we're inoculating men with false peace and drawing them to the very throne of God to experience the terror of the Lord. That's what you're doing. I often ask myself this question. Demetrius, in all of your advocacy, in all of your debating about the politics of the day, are you forgetting that men are lost before God? Are you forgetting that they are standing with a condemned sentence before God? Many of us have. We are like a doctor who fails to tell a man in excruciating pain that he has stage four cancer. And because we fail to diagnose the issue, we fail to apply the remedy to their situation. In understanding who we are outside of Christ, we come to understand the impending danger ahead of us if we are lost. If we are saved, we come to understand the grace of God, experience joy because of what, it is, what he has done for us. And we come to a healthy understanding of dependence upon God. You know, John Piper wrote a book years ago called Don't Waste Your Life. I want to write a book someday called Don't Waste Your Radical Depravity. The three ways the Christian can live in peace, joy, and happiness, understanding what Christ has delivered them from. This doctrine applies to you today, Christian, in a good way. Because it ushers you into the joy of the Lord, seeing what He has delivered you from. But if you are lost, this doctrine should be alarming to you. It should terrify you. And today, we want to look at several things in this passage. 
Number one, God's universal charge. We want to examine his general charge against us. Romans 3, 9. God's evidence of the charge in verses 10 through 18. And God's final verdict in 19 through 20, which expressed the end result of human rebellion. Now, before we move into this passage, we want to understand this. We want to understand the word condemnation. A few of us understand the serious ramifications, what it means to be condemned, because we have never been tried by the law. Let us define condemnation. Merriam Webster defines it as this to declare someone to be wrong, guilty, or evil after weighing evidence and without reservation. Condemnation, the Greek word for it, simply means punishment for a crime. Simply put, condemnation is to be declared guilty and to be punished for a crime due to the evidence manifested against the convicted party. A modern example of this is Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff was a notorious financier who ran the largest Ponzi scheme in history, worth about $64.8 billion. He's a one-time chairman of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. But on March the 12th, 2009, Madoff was found guilty of 11 felony charges, including security fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud, money laundering, making false statements, perjury, theft from an employer benefit plan, and making false filings with the SEC. Madoff was given, because of his transgressions, he was given the maximum penalty of 150 years in federal prison. Due to Madoff's transgressions and the evidence that was levied against him, he was condemned and he lost his reputation. His family was destroyed and his career blighted. And just like Bernie Madoff, we without Christ will be sentenced according to God's law, not the law of the land, but God's law, which is over the law of the land. And this is what Romans 3, 9 through 20 expresses to us this morning. God's universal charge. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are what? Under sin. Our passage this morning expresses to us why man stands condemned. In the words of the Holy Spirit, through Paul, he provides us with God's general indictment or assessment of human character. Here, Paul expresses to us the radical corruption of man. He paints a bleak picture of human sinfulness. And the very first point Paul makes about human sinfulness is that human beings are enslaved to sin. I want you to notice in verse 9, the indictment. Paul says that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Paul is expressing the universal nature of sin's control. The religious, the non-religious, the civilized, the uncivilized, the good, bad, the ugly, blacks, whites, any ethnic group you can conjure up, all are under sin. The preposition here, under, in the Greek speaks to someone being under the authority of another Working directly as a subordinate. Do you get the picture? Sin exerts a universal authority over mankind. Sin is not the problem of the oppressor alone, the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, a system. It is the problem of the human heart. 
People are oppressed because they are sinful. Systems are corrupt because people are lost in sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Sin is not out there somewhere. It is in here. And let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to fight it out there. And all you're doing is taking a weed and cutting off the top. And it's going to keep coming back. You can never deal with sin with human tools. You must deal with it with the truth of the word of God and the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, in all of its jaw-dropping awfulness, God is God's formal assessment of men. They are under sin. Jesus confirms this in John 8, 34. He says that men are enslaved to sin under its jurisdiction. He works for sin. Now in our time, we have a racially charged atmosphere in America. When you talk about slavery, automatically the images that are conjured up in our minds are the images of the transatlantic slave trade. A people taken from their country against their will. And that's what we think about human beings, right? As far as sin. But that is not what the Bible says about us. It says that we have an embrace slavery to sin. We have a willingness to obey sin. We have a deadly love affair with sin. And this is why Jesus said in John 3, 19, men love darkness rather than light. This is why in Job 15, verse 16, he says, how much less pure is a corrupt and sinful person who thirsts for wickedness. Men love sin, they desire sin, and they give themselves over willingly to their slavery of sin. I don't know about you, but I don't like beet juice. I don't like beet juice. I don't like carrot juice. You know, if you were to come to me, you know, my buddy Glenn here comes to me with a glass of beet juice. I don't know. We, the friendship would be fractured. You know, I, a Coke? Yes. A Dr. Pepper? Yes. The 23 flavors, which are probably something bad in Dr. Pepper? Yes but not beet juice. People consume what they love. People do what they desire. Proverbs 21.10, the soul of the wicked desires evil. Listen to me. Listen. Men don't have a sliver of grace in them. Man is not born with provenient grace. He doesn't have a pocket of power lying in his bosom or burning in his bosom, as one guy told me recently. He doesn't have it in him. You know what he has? Death. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that men are dead in trespasses and sins. If you go to a graveyard today, you look at the names of the people on the tombstone. Here lies John Jones. You cry out to John Jones, guess what? John Jones will still be there. If he gets up, you are going to run. That is a miracle. 
But John Jones does not have pervenient life in him. And human beings outside of Christ do not have pervenient grace. They don't have anything in them to use to come to Christ. They don't want to come to Christ. We are sitting in a jail cell as lost men, clinging to the chains, kissing the bars, cheering on those that hold us in, embracing our slavery. And for this, man stands condemned. You know, you get a rebuttal sometimes, right? Somebody comes and says, hey, I know a guy down the road, the guy that lives up the street from me. He hates his sin. I like what Thomas Aquinas says here. He says, you know, men hate the effects of sin. They hate the consequences of sin, the fruit of sin. But they do not love God and they will not come to him. You know, C.S. Lewis contemplating these things, the doctrine of human sinfulness. C.S. Lewis said that hell is locked from the inside. Now, I can't substantiate that from Scripture. I don't know where C.S. Lewis got that from. But I can tell you this. When I read Revelation chapter 9 and verse 16, I am amazed at the power of sin. In Revelation 9, Someday I hope to preach this. Probably not here, but I'm going to preach it somewhere so I never get invited back. <laughs> but Revelation 9 is when hell comes to earth. And it says that these men are tormented day after day. They can't even die. And it says that they would not repent of their demon worship, murders, sorcery, and sexual, sexual immorality. Then I was reading CBR and we got further into it. And in chapter 16, I've, I've noticed this for the first time that it's saying the same thing that Revelation 9 says about people lost and under the power of sin. It says this it says that when God pours out his bold judgments, you know what they do? Man, you would think that people would wise up, right? You would think that they would say, hold up here, something's not right with this. Man, did you see that thing just fly through the sky? Hey, something's not right. I'm, I'm getting right with God. You know what they do? It says that they will not repent. It said they would not repent in verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9, they would not repent or give glory to God. Behold the power of sin. Listen, you can't manage your sin. You know that, right? You can't coddle it. You can't tinker with sin. It's too deceptive for you. It's too powerful. Listen, I'm, I'm warning you this morning. It's too powerful. This thing, sin, took a morning star and turned him into Satan, an adversary of God. It's too powerful. Sin only knows one title, Lord. It only knows one function, total control. It only yields one destiny, death. Death. Christian, let me speak to you this morning. Look at this and use it. To mortify your sin and to hate your sin. 
look at it and marvel at the grace of God. You know, as I was studying these passages, I, I, I sent a text to my good buddy here, Raymond. And I was just amazed. You know, oftentimes we preachers, we had a bad habit of saying, you guys, you guys, you guys, but we're in the same boat. And I looked at what God had done in my life. And I thought about a time when my Aunt Miranda tried to share the gospel with me. And I had so much disdain for her for doing that. I was furious with my aunt. But I realized that my disdain for my aunt was really my disdain for God. And in the midst of all of that, God, out of the wellspring of his being, out of the wellspring of his love, looks upon Demetrius. And at a church service one night, he calls out to me and I come home. In the midst of my rebellion. And man, I've done some things. But God still sought me. This is the God we serve. This truth, Christian. Understanding it. Meditating on it. I guarantee you. It will usher you in to humility. It will bring joy. Listen, let me ask you a question. Who here are you bitter against? Huh? Who is it that you can't forgive this morning? Well, they did this to me three years ago, and I'm going to frown up my face, and every time I see them, I'm going to walk past them. Who is that? Do you understand the grace of God that has been displayed to you? That while you were a sinner, while you were an enemy of God, while you were in rebellion, God, in his goodness, sent the most valuable thing to this world, his son to die for you. I'm going to pray that that's not you. Because God, in saving us from such sinfulness, has done a wonderful thing for us. Let me, let me tell you something that's good about God. Let me tell you something. God seeks for people just like this. The Lord Jesus Christ is not waiting for you to get your act together. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you this morning that for all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. In the midst of all of this awfulness, D, you mean God still in his love? Would die? Yes, absolutely. You mean what I did two, three years ago, God will still be? Absolutely. What kind of God is like this? Except Yahweh. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They are under sin. Do you believe that your neighbors are under sin? 
Do you believe that your unsaved co-workers are under sin? Do you believe that your parents that are lost are under sin? Your children are under sin. Yes, yes, little sweets, little ooly wooly bully kute, that little bundle of joy. Yes, that they are. They are under the power of sin. Let me ask you a question. If you believe this, how would this change your discipleship to your children? How would it change your prayer life in relation to your children? What about your coworkers? That goes for me too. I love my coworkers. I've gone to lunch with my coworkers, and you know what I forget sometimes? That they're under sin. I've missed millions of opportunities to share the gospel with them. This is why this applies to us today. They are under sin, man. Do you know why the government is messed up? Do you know why people are really racist? They are under the authority and control of sin. That's why. If someone devalues me as a black man, you know what I think? They are under, I'm going to say it again, they are under the power of sin. If you out here see me like that, you are under the power of sin. There are no social programs that will fix that. There is no politician that will fix that. There are no Black Lives Matters groups that will fix that. The gospel. It's the only thing that will change a radically depraved heart, a racially driven heart. And you must stop using other methods. This thing called the gospel is the power of God. When God created the planets... He didn't say that's the power of God, although it was. He didn't liken that to the power of God. As God harnesses the power of a voracious black hole, that is not the power of God. As God processes nuclear fusion in our sun, that is not the power of God. You know what God says his power is? The gospel. Start believing it. I'm sorry to yell like this. I'm so mad at these ridiculous Christians out here preaching another gospel men that are on TV leaders in the church preaching ridiculousness makes me mad sin has infiltrated and contaminated everything in its path men are under sin And God doesn't leave us hanging, but he gives us. Listen, God gives us the evidence. God is not condemning us just to condemn us, but God is saying this is why you are condemned in verses 10 through 18. We want to understand why we are condemned and the evidence levied against us. Look at the point of evidence, number one, in verse 10. Verse 10, it says that none are righteous, no, not one. The word righteousness here speaks to someone who obeys or conforms to a law, whether human or divine. There are people who perform, listen, civil righteousness. But this is not the kind of righteousness that God is talking about here. Paul is talking about the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God. 
from the perspective that God has it. You must understand that God requires us to obey his law in its totality. I was talking to a Mormon weeks ago, Raymond, and a gentleman said, hey, I have the good news. You know, I said, oh, yeah? Tell me about the good news. Come on. Let's, 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 let's spar a little bit. He says, listen, I was praying to God, and these two gentlemen came to my house, and I had a burning in my bosom. And in my heart, I knew that this was God. Oh, okay. And he says, now I'm doing good works. And God will look at those good works, man, and see that I love him. And I said, man, we're in trouble. He said, what? I said, we're in trouble. I said, you see, man, listen, none is righteous. Yahweh of the Bible, he's so inflexible that he will not. He shall not accept your works. You know why? Because Yahweh says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all of your good works in his eyes are filthy, menstruous rags in the original language. He will not. And he said, man, you're reading from the King James Version. I said, that says that in the Masoretic text as well, buddy. Huh? There are none righteous. Ray Comfort, one of my son's favorite guy, helps to highlight human sinfulness by using God's law to show people that they are unrighteous. He runs into these people, right? They're exciting videos. And he asks them a series of questions. You know, have you ever looked at someone and lusted after them? Yeah. Have you, have you ever murdered someone? Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever used God's name as a, as a cuss word? Yes. He says, well, I'm not saying this. You're saying it by your own admission. You are a lying, thieving, blasphemous adulterer at heart. And on judgment day, if you stand before God, will you be innocent or guilty? And if they're honest, they always say that they will be guilty. Dear ones, can you ask yourselves the same questions? And if you have broken just one of those laws, you stand guilty before God. You must understand that when it comes to righteousness, God does not simply look at our external works but the motives and motions of our heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says that he looks at the heart. He is not like a man. He looks at our heart. If we are honest with ourselves this morning, we must agree with the preacher of Ecclesiastes 7.20. He looks over the expanse of human existence and he says, indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does right and never sins. But he did not have the knowledge that you and I have today. 
God didn't give him the prophetic grace to look down through the corridors of time and see the chief among ten thousands, the rose of Sharon, he who dwelt from all eternity, who could not see the king of glory and all of his might. He could not see the Lord strong and mighty. Mighty is he that would come and wrestle your sin, lasso it down, destroy Satan's works, and pay for your sins, swallowing the wrath of God and exhausting it. He could not see Jesus, the one who would come on the scene, who would be without sin, who would fulfill the law in all of its positive and negative aspects. He would fulfill the ceremonial law. He would fulfill the sacramonial law, the moral law. He would fulfill the law in all of its entirety. Matthew 5, 17. He would fulfill the negative aspects of the law. He who sins must be punished by God. Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68. They must receive at the end the very curse of God. And it says in Galatians chapter 3, 14 and 15 that Jesus was cursed by God. Crushed by God. Decimated the wrath of hell upon him. Your sin upon him. And he who knew no sin became sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes, the preacher could not see this one, but we see him clearly today. Let me ask you this. Do you know Christ this morning? Huh? Do you know Jesus in this way? Do you know him as Savior? Do you rest in Christ? Do you savor Christ? I'm going to tell you something about myself. If Jesus Christ isn't enough, he is going to take me up and throw me into the deepest pit of hell. And I hope that if he does, I would go down there saying, what a friend we have in Jesus. Because he's that worthy. If he isn't enough, but he is. He has done the work for you. You are unrighteous. You are without power. But he is all righteousness and he is all powerful. He upholds the world by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3. He has more than enough power to save you. People are under sin. They are unrighteous. Let's look at point two. Man has a depraved mind. Verse 11. No one understands. Listen. No one seeks for God. Now Paul is not saying that people are stupid or they're imbeciles. They're uneducated. Paul is not saying that at all in this passage. We have people in this room who are scientists, doctors, insurance brokers, advisors, teachers. Some of you are so educated that you could give a degree or two to someone in this room. Help them out a little bit. Help them get a job. If it worked that way now. Come on now. But man has discovered the laws of nature. They have created airplanes. They have harnessed the power of nuclear energy. 
They are tremendous in their intellect, in their gifting from God. This is a common grace to mankind. So what Paul is saying is this, that people lack spiritual, spiritual perception and not human knowledge. This is what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What Paul is saying is that men do not understand God, his being, his character, the nature of God. No one understands God. Psalm 10.4 rightly sums this up. He says, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Man's mind is not inclined to think of God, to love the Lord is God with all of his heart. He does not understand God. And because he does not understand God, he does not understand himself. When I was in college, we used this book, this science book. And it was talking about the world's understanding of evolution. And one guy had a theory that human beings came from multiple primates. Some primates smarter than the others. Blacks came from this one, whites came from this one, Asians came from this one. And this is human reality. Listen, this is what you get when you forget God. This is what you forget when you forget that every person is created equally in the image of God with dignity and worth. They are lost. They are lost. This shows up in the church. You know, this is why I'm invited to churches probably one time. (laughs) My wife will tell you. I don't get invited. I get invited to churches to preach and then I never get invited again. I have pastors in my family that won't even invite me to their church. Isn't that right, Steph? (laughs) But this shows up in the church. So I love you, Redemption Hill. You put up with me. God in the church has been demoted. He's been made into this proverbial genie. We went to a church that believed this. Every Sunday. That man made me mad. My wife will tell you. I was waiting in line for that pastor every Sunday. And they saw me as the troubler of Israel. Because what I would do is point the scripture and tell him, this is not the God of the Bible. Why aren't you telling the truth? I was on the leadership team at this church. They kicked me off. 
Everything. My wife will tell you. Everything. But listen. You must understand that men don't understand God. They don't understand, nor do they want to understand the God of the Bible. Robert Bro, in his book, Religion, Origins and Ideas, says that after an analysis of primitive peoples and their religions, he realized that they have never come up to a high concept or view of God. Matter of fact, the gods are bigger versions of the people. The mind is at enmity with God, Romans 8, 7. This lack of understanding is not inflicted upon us. It is embraced by us. Romans 1. People are given a revelation of God. What do they do? Romans 1, 18 through 23. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, I often get the question, right? Hey, Demetrius, and it's like one of these questions that, 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 that are conjured up to try to stomp you. What about that, you know that guy out there in the jungle? You know that guy, that, that happy heathen out there that's jovial? He's never heard the gospel. He's never heard the truth. Wouldn't God be evil to send that man to hell? You know what I tell him? Throws him for a loop. Absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what? The judge of all the earth will do right. And he has given men the truth. You see, in Romans 1, 18 through 23, it says that he has given men enough truth. They know the truth. They don't want God. They don't understand God. They don't want the truth. People don't go to hell because of what they don't know. They go to hell because of what they do know. Let that sink in. They go to hell because of what they do know. Do you see the helpless state that the world is in? They cannot turn over a new leaf. You can't get yourself together someday. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If left to yourself, you will always suppress the truth. Not only does Paul say here in verse 11, no one understands, but he says here, no one seeks for God. Paul is trying to relate to us that the will is debilitated. Hey, Demetrius, are you saying that the will we don't have a free will. Man, listen, when I leave here, if I want to go to Burger King, I'm going to Burger King. If I want to go to Jersey Mike's, I'm going to Jersey Mike's. Now, my wife looking at me, all that stuff is unhealthy. So let me, you know, just tell you that. But the will is debilitated. We will not seek after God on our own. We seek after the things that we love and we love our sin. You know, a wolf has teeth and a lamb has teeth. Both can eat grass. They have the capacity to put grass in their mouth. 
But one will and the other won't. The wolf has a free will to eat grass. But he will never eat grass. He does not love grass. His affections, his internal bent is not for grass. It's for meat. That wolf, if he's hungry enough and you're in the wilderness, he will eat you. He wants meat. And unless, listen, someone turns that wolf into a sheep, he will always eat meat. And this what God is what God does for us and is willing to do through his son via his spirit. He takes people who love sin. He gives them a new heart. He gives them new affections so that they want to obey him. They want to love him. You know, when I was out there in the world, man, I talked to one of my friends on Thursday. He said, man, we have come a long way. And I said, man, Jesus has brought us a long way. When I was out there in the world, I didn't think anything about sin. I was having fun. But when I heard the gospel and saw the predicament I was in and cried out to Jesus, he changed my heart and he has given me new affections, new loves, new joys. And I'm telling you, if you're struggling this morning, if you're wrestling with salvation, if you're questioning your own salvation, Jesus Christ is willing and able to give you new affection. Jesus Christ loves you. He is willing. You know, when I think about this, as I was studying, I was thinking about Ezekiel 16. And God gives this narrative of himself, a beautiful narrative, where he's walking along the path. And he sees a baby wallowing in filth, practically dead. Everybody walks past this baby. It's putrid. No one wants to touch it. But you know who does? God. And he takes that baby and he scoops that baby up and he washes that baby off and he nurtures that baby. And that baby grows up to be a beautiful woman, Israel. And I thought about that story in the light of who we are. God knew who you were. God knew what you did last summer. God knew what you did 10 years ago. He knew what you did 20 years ago. 30 years ago. He knew how sinful you were. But God looked and he saw you in eternity past. 
And he looked at you and he said, that one there I want. And he said, live. Stop doubting the goodness of God. If God loved you while you were a sinner, how will he stop loving you now? Stop doubting God. God loves people just like this. God did not come for the righteous. You know that, right? The man enters into the human experience, toils for 33 years for sinners. That's the kind of God you serve. And this is his immeasurable grace to us. Evidence three, man actively rebels against God. Romans 2.12, all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. Once again in Romans 1, they sin against God, right? And they give themselves over to debase passions. After turning aside, none do good. Paul is not saying that your helping of an old lady across the street is not good. That's good. Do that. He's not saying helping your neighbor cut down a tree is not good. That's good. But it's a horizontal righteousness. And not a righteousness done for the glory of God. I may be helping the old lady across the street, man, because I'm trying to give me a little dollar or two. Huh? I may be helping my neighbor cut down that tree because I have a fire pit in my backyard. And I'm hoping that John will give me a little something. But I'm not doing it for the glory of God. And what does 1 Corinthians 10.31 says? It says, whatsoever you do, do it to the glory of God. Even the most mundane things like eating and drinking. Many times we do things for our own glory, mundane things, but not to the glory of God. We actively rebel against God and we do not do good. This is what Proverbs 21.4 says, the plowing of the wicked is sinful to God. Proverbs 15 and 8 says that all of their religious works, their sacrifices are sinful in his eyes. And we actively rebel because we have a depraved heart in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their heart is depraved. Now, we don't see the word heart in this passage. Why am I using heart? Because in Matthew 12... 34 and 35, it says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says from the evil treasure of your heart will come evil things, acts, and intentions. And from the good treasure of your heart will come bad things. Our mouths reveal to God what we truly believe. Our gossip reveals to God 
that we do not love our neighbors as ourselves. Our slander against people in the church, in the church now, reveal to God that we need help. Verses 15 and 16, evidence point number five, man has a depraved or his conduct is depraved verses 15 and 16 their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery the way of peace they have not known it is because of this depraved heart that we have sinful conduct the way of peace we have not known james montgomery Boyce says this he says men lack peace in three ways They are not at peace with God. Men are at war with God. They are not at peace with each other. We see that in our culture today. They're not at peace. Listen, why are men fighting against other men created in the image of God? Why are men doing that? They don't have peace with God. Well, that's elementary. Well, it's the truth. That's what it is. They don't have peace because they don't know God. They don't have peace with themselves. In evidence six, there is no fear or reverence of God. The verdict is found in verses 19 through 20. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I want you to understand that the essence of sin is found in 1 John 3, 4. It is the transgression of God's law. Because we have broken God's law, we stand guilty. Listen, if you are thinking for one moment that you can ward off God's judgment because of a few verses you read in your CBR and a few prayers, you're trusting in the wrong thing. If you aren't trusting in Christ this morning, you will be standing before God like an ant before a blast furnace. There will be no hope for you. Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, great expositor, had a gentleman that he loved. He lived near his church. Dr. Barnhouse would Preach to this man. He would share the gospel with this man. And this man, because he was a part of a club, always put his faith in his good works. And he would tell Dr. Barnhouse, I don't need Jesus. I don't need church. I'm good. I've done this. I've helped this person. We've helped the poor. We've done this. I believe on judgment day that God will look at my good works and save me. Not Christ, my good works. Dr. Barnhouse got a call 
weeks later that this man was dying. And Dr. Barnhouse sat next to the man and he said, can I sit next to you? He said, yes. He said this. He said, I want to sit next to a man and see how a man dies without Christ. And that man cried out to Christ. And I'm telling you today, you can have Christ. Jesus Christ, although you don't seek him, he's seeking you. That's how good he is. Come to him and he will in no way cast you out. Father, we thank you for this message. We pray that you would impress this truth upon the hearts of everyone here. We pray for those that are unsaved. We pray that you would save them. We pray that you would bring them to yourself, seeing that you are a good God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Demetrius White at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.